Hi, this is State Delegate Janelle Wilkins from District 20 in Montgomery County, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the best source of news and notes on Maryland politics and policy. The Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. We are after dark. How you feeling? It is Thursday, January 27th, about 8.30 in the evening. It's been a long day, but here we are. <laughs> it has. Like, the session's feeling it. Although, like, I still don't really know what Annapolis is like. You've been in town more than I have. So it's Thursday night at 8.30. I feel like, like... There's a, a gravitational pull pulling me toward the stupid karaoke bar and go see John Donovan and the whole gang down there. But you know, that's I'm, I'm not doing that, at least. I don't know if anybody is. You have any idea, like, is, is Annapolis still jumping or is it is it pretty calm? What do you know? Uh, I mean, I think it's pretty calm generally. Uh, as, as you know, I mean, I'm not doing that either. I don't think I don't think karaoke is a thing, but it seems like forever since karaoke, by the way. But, uh, you know, it generally seems pretty calm. I don't think that you see the normal hustle and bustle in particular during the day. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of like a ghost town. It's kind of mm. eerie in a way. So I, I don't know. I think a lot of legislators are, are cooped up whether or not they're in town in their hotels or uh, some of them in committee rooms in the Senate or they're at home and, and back in their districts just definitely don't see the hustle and bustle, but it seems like maybe we're heading in the right direction here in terms of the trends, the health trends, but yeah, I don't think you're missing very much, Michael, and I don't think you're missing karaoke, but karaoke misses you. Well, I don't know about that, but let's let's hope the next week next week or two turn us in the right direction and we can start feeling a little more normal. I'm I'm really looking forward to that. Me too, and I'm sure DePaul Nibber, who is our special guest tonight, a, a member of the Mako policy team. DePaul has been on the podcast before. DePaul, this is your first time after dark. Are you a karaoke guy, DePaul? I think that's how we can kick off like an After Dark episode, asking you about karaoke. Um, I can be made to be a, a karaoke. <laughs> I like that. That's yeah. good. That's that's yeah. like the gauntlet's thrown. I like it. Yeah. Uh, Kevin, I, I take the whole uh, After Dark thing very seriously. I'm in my basement. It is <laughs> cavernous. It is dark. I'm in the mood. Let's let's podcast. I like it. All right. Well, I like it. I like it. I'm glad because we're going to talk about several issues in your wheelhouse and policy portfolio tonight, DePaul. First, we're going to give an update on the opioid settlement. We've covered that extensively a few months ago, and we'll have a lot of updates there, some good news. We'll also talk about what seems like a lot of bills dealing with body cameras and why this is an important issue for county governments and the latest on legislation to protect public health officials from threats and intimidation. This is a MAKO legislative initiative. There was a bill hearing this week on one of the bills, so we'll get into that too. But I think we've already sort of talked about this. You know, maybe town doesn't feel like session necessarily. Maybe there aren't a bunch of people running around and Michael's not singing karaoke. Everybody usually knows where to find him on Thursday night. But I'll tell you what, it feels like session in terms of the bills are starting to pick up. We have healthy bill lists that we're going through as a, as a policy staff and reading, presenting to our legislative committee. It feels like those synopses are starting to get a little bit thicker. What do you guys think? Definitely has that flavor to me, right? I've, I've been watching the 
the, the discussions on the floor, the Senate and the House, and they, you know they've been doing redistricting, which we knew was coming, and that's a lively debate uh, as we expected. But now your committees are starting to report stuff to the floor, and they're they're you know taking action on stuff. It's it's feeling like it's really happening. So I don't I don't know. I guess I guess it's a real session, even if I'm mostly in my little you know home office. Yeah, I, I mean, there's still a pandemic. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's present, right? <laughs> Yeah, but the bills are definitely picking up. They're starting to roll in. And, you know, as we start to reach bill introduction deadlines, it, it'll get even it'll get even more so like it's like it's session. And we're going to get into over a thousand bills, I imagine, in both the House and the Senate. So we're getting there. I think we're in the 400s or so. But let's get into our first uh, topic of discussion this evening. We're talking about opioids. We've talked about the opioid settlement before. This is a national thing, right? We've heard about the litigation that's going on nationally. But DePaul, you've been really working hard on this, and I think you've been entrenched in it, really, since you came on to MAKO. And, and let's talk about where we are and, and maybe a, a brief recap about how much money for needed resources is on the line here when it comes to Maryland's cut. And then the plan for moving forward, that, that's what we're going to talk about where we are. Yeah. So um, when we talk about the Johnson and Johnson opioid medication settlement, we are talking about over four hundred million dollars um, going to Maryland and then split up amongst all of our counties and our municipalities. And, you know, we're very grateful to our attorney general who um, really wanted our input. Um, wanted to know what's the best way to split this money up. Um, and, you know, he included both MAKO in this conversation as well as our counterparts, uh, the Maryland Municipal League. Um, and, you know, at the AG's behest, we created some work groups. We worked with a draft that the attorney general um, initially offered us. Um, and, you know, he, he was amenable to uh, changes and, you know, we we took that as incentive <laughs> and ran with it, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I think that's about right. <laughs> yeah. I, I, our work group, um, you know, they had some very strong ideas of, of how to shape this this agreement. And, um, you know, I, I have to really give a, a sh big shout out to the folks that worked with us on this um on this agreement. And uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to name them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, James Benjamin, who's actually the county attorney for Baltimore County. Uh, Hamilton Tyler, who's a deputy county attorney for Anne Arundel. Um, Anthony LaDonna, who's an assistant county attorney for Hartford. Um, Stuart Barrell, who's the county attorney for Caroline. Uh, Randy Guy, who's uh, the commission president uh, for St. Mary's County. Um, and Gary Coop, um, our county solicitor for Howard County. And then we also had representation from Baltimore City, um, Sarah Gross, the chief of, of, of affirmative litigation. Right. Uh, so it was a strong group. Um, and the result of our deliberations um, was made available, I'd say, beginning uh, late last month, early this month, um, for counties to review. And, um, you know, I, from what I hear, it, it, a lot of counties signed on. Yeah. I, I think, I think the, the whole process was the attorney general 
I think was duty bound to say we need to have some transparency and accountability in where these dollars go. Right. So we spent a lot of time talking about, okay, the, you know, would it be a big problem if each county needed to create some sort of abatement fund? The idea of receive these dollars into a special station and and then use them that way for the things on the list under the agreement. Right. This isn't free money. This is money coming from the settlement for purposes of what you're going to do to continue your work to combat and the crisis and to, to serve the people who have been victimized by it. So I don't think we really put up a lot of resistance to the idea of transparency and accountability. We wanted to make sure that in the in the effort to do that, you didn't end up with too much red tape or you know the requirement. Like there, there was talk about, well, maybe everybody should form regional conglomerates and things like that, but. In Maryland, the county governments, we already we all have a local health department. We all have the capacity to receive grants, work with our local nonprofits and so forth. So I, I think we move the needle in a positive direction by getting all that, you know, that list of stakeholders, that's that's small, medium and large all around the table. And I, I think it was a really productive process, pointed us in the right direction and I don't know, anecdotally, the pickup, like, I mean, the, the, the big deliverable here is the final, the, the final memorandum of understanding sits before every local jurisdiction. It's like, are you in? Like, are you willing to forego what might be a continuing lawsuit in the interest of taking this settlement and taking the deal? And we wanted the answer to be yes for a lot of our members. We wanted them to see it as a good value proposition. And it sounds like we've got really broad buy-in and that's that's encouraging. Yeah, uh, I, I should note that we just passed a, a crucial deadline. Um, it was the registration deadline for the settlement and that happened yesterday. Mm -hmm. uh, so January 26th um, for our listeners who are listening, not today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I know that a ton of work has gone into this and DePaul, you named some names and I know that they've been so invested and it's taken up a lot of time, but it sounds to me like, you know, the AG, of course, I think they, 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 they understood the significance and the importance of hearing from the local governments. Local governments have been on the front lines of this epidemic for a long time. This is, this is needed. We need to streamline to get this money out because these resources are absolutely essential as we continue to fight this epidemic in the middle of a pandemic. I think this is one of the low key big stories that maybe a lot, not a lot of people are hearing about sure. yet, but, but, but all of these, you know, these local governments coming together and it sounds like there's going to be a lot of buy-in here. So I, I love the idea of, I mean, this is good government, right? The, the AG says, look, we got this money coming in. We know that you all are the ones who are, are out there doing this work every single day. So we need to bring everybody to the table. We like bringing people to the table. Everybody got a seat. And then you come out on the other side of it. Everybody seems happy and we have a really good product. And it seems like, it's, it's really benefited from the input of MAKO and MML and all of our members in terms of shaping this in a way that's going to be really, really beneficial for our communities. And again, that's that's the whole point of this, right? These are resources yeah. that have to get out the door quickly. Yeah. Uh, in terms of next steps, uh, we have a bill that's coming forward in, in the General Assembly that's going to essentially um, codify this very same agreement that we've worked on together. 
Um, and so we're looking forward to seeing that passed and, um, you know, hopefully the money will start flowing soon thereafter. Yeah, I think I think this is one of the, this is a case where we've got a really good argument to bring to the General Assembly that this is a finished product. Right. I mean, this got shopped around among local governments and in the space of days, it won't be weeks, it'll be days. We'll see exactly where the dust settled. But I, I think there's been really broad buy in from our 23 counties. I suspect the municipal governments will have really broad buy in as well. And so you bring it to the legislature and say, everybody's on board. This is the deal. I, I don't think this is one that they tear apart limb from limb and rebuild. I think this is got it. We see everybody. Everybody's already, you know, you have lots and lots of parties on board. So you just codify what makes sense. And the attorney general will have extra credibility with all of our buy-in. Yep. The general assembly likes to, when you make things easy. So hopefully this, this is smooth sailing, but yep. our listeners should hear more about this in the days ahead. Sounds like a really good outcome there and really good work. And this is how things are supposed to work. It's good government. So I want to get into our next issue here and body cameras, right? And, and this is this is an issue that we, we've talked about a lot, I feel like, not only here on the podcast, but over the, over the past few years and several years, I guess, this has been a big issue in Maryland and many states. And it's a big deal for county governments for many reasons. And again, I feel like I've just seen a lot of these bills coming in from, from various sponsors and I mean, DePaul, these are all going to you and you're reading all these bills. I mean, what's going on here? I know that, that a lot of stuff that happened last year is probably driving this, but this is still an issue that necessarily hasn't been solved, right? Like we, we don't necessarily have an outcome that, that's, gonna, that's going to get us to the point where the General Assembly wants everybody to be, where you know everybody has body cameras, but there are a lot of lingering questions and a lot of details to iron out. So what are you seeing in terms of, of these bills, DePaul, and, and which bills stand out to you specifically? Yeah. Um, so going back just slightly um, to last session, I mean, they, they passed the Police Accountability Act, which is not a single act, but numerous different bills. Um, and one of them uh, essentially expanded uh, body camera operations across the state. And, you know, it, the main issues that were brought up then and still exist to this day are issues of cost. Uh, of, you know, looking at the data that, or the footage that is produced by these body cameras and figuring out what to do with that footage. Um, you know, th this is all publicly available information. It's it's subject to Public Information Act requests. And so, um, you know, it's a lot of man hours to look over footage and figure out what is pertinent and, you know, what should we be sharing with folks? And, you know, the, the last thing you want to do is share just a stagnant bit of footage of someone's living room. So, you know, someone else can just peek right. in. Um, right. Oh, I see Michael Sanderson has Picasso in his house and now <laughs> DePaul has just released it. And I'm going to go get that Picasso, right? Like, you don't want that to happen. That's the kind of stuff that can happen. By the way, Michael Sanderson has numerous Picassos in his basement. <laughs> Careful, man. You know, he didn't that for me. But anyway, anyway, go ahead. But I, I think, like, joking aside, though, like, okay, so first of all, we have a Public Information Act that was written decades ago and has a completely good intention that basically says, for the most part, information that the government is holding 
should be available for the public to see. So if you go knock on the door and you say, I, I want to know who's filed for the permits on that that construction site down the road from me. I want to know, you know, who's involved with this stuff. Those public permits are generally speaking public information and you can get a copy. So stuff like that. And I want to see the minutes of the public meeting. or I want to see who debated on it. All those things should be public, right? And we have a process for that. Thing is, all these laws were written for pieces of paper. So photocopy, photocopy these 18 pages, hand me a little binder, and I walk out the door with what I wanted. The thing is, uh, you know, 16 hours of footage from a double shift of a law enforcement officer who was wearing a camera is now sitting on a hard drive or a server someplace. And that is, for all intents and purposes, a public document. So. Yeah totally different ball game it's not a five cent photocopy it's hiring somebody to make sure i mean you know the joke about the picasso is kind of amusing but what if the police officer was talking to a, a victim or right, right, confidential right. informants or other things that are part of police work that you obviously don't want to share with the public right i mean this mm-hmm. is like this, this is not just uh, kindergarten work to go through the, the footage and find the relevant stuff. It's a matter of making sure we don't unreasonably share something that would compromise, you know, like you said, the inside of somebody's house, but also like the victim of crime. Police officers are spend a lot of their time talking to victims and witnesses and so forth. So that's it's, it's an important thing to get right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and to be fair, um, the existing law does allow for redaction of footage that, you know, might make some certain private things public. Mm -hmm. The problem being that it is totally at the discretion of some county administrator right now. Mm -hmm. So um, imagine being an overworked county administrator with 20 different requests for thousands of hours of footage and trying to redact what you think is pertinent, but then, you know, by virtue of, you know, just being overworked or overtaxed or overstressed, like, you know, this stuff is going to get out there. Um, and that's the last thing you want. You want clear directions um, as to what's going to get out there. And, you know, the other part of this bill is who gets this footage, you know? Um, so we certainly like a, a person that is subject to a crime is going to have access to this footage. Right. Uh, you know, uh, victims are going to have access to this footage, but like, you know, you don't want this to get into the hands of someone that is going to take this footage and then bully someone with it. Right. And, you know, with, with social media, I mean, that can easily happen, right? Somebody can get their hands on something and put it out there to the world and use it in a way that's going to bully someone, intimidate someone. And that's, that's not what we want. So it's really important to, to put those guardrails up and to have the standards and everybody's on the same page. But there's another side to this too, there's a cost to store all of this footage, right? I mean, the other question is, how do you store all this? And what do you need in terms of storage capacity when, you know, you have potentially thousands of hours? So not only somebody having to sit through and redact, and we're used to seeing that, like you see the black lines through print, right? Like this is not a new idea, but normally it's just, okay, well, you're used to seeing those documents. Now somebody has to go through each second and watch to make sure nothing's being compromised, but also you have to store all of this footage. And that, you know, that's a lot of storage, right? That's, that can get pricey as well. So how to yeah. handle all these things is really important. And I think there are a number of bills trying to, trying to address those concerns. Yeah. And just moving back slightly, I mean, you still have to buy the 
body cameras too. Right, so, right, right. Lost. Um, so uh, yeah, you know, there's two bills that I think kind of address these issues. Um, one is um, a bill from Senator Sidnor that um, specifically addresses the issue of um, you know PIA requests of body camera footage, um, when to share, who to share with, um, and I, I think that's a really great bill and one that I've actually testified in support of. Um, and then the other bill is um, from Delegate Jazz Lewis, which focuses more on these costs and and kind of, you know, shifting the burden slightly away from our, our counties um, in this respect. And I think, yeah. Michael, you could probably talk about that even better than I can. I, I just I just feel like where we where we left our heroes last year was this was an item that I think everybody involved in the police reform debate agreed they weren't done with, but they didn't. I mean, it, I mean there was a, there was a really heavy lift to pull together the multiple bills that passed last year, and so like dotting the i's and crossing the t's on everything seemed like much. So what they ended up doing was saying we want to make sure every law enforcement agency has a camera for all their appropriate officers like not not people who are on desk duty all day and in administrative functions and like if you're undercover you don't need to wear the camera on your chest that would reveal exactly who you are right but with those kind of obvious exceptions we want every appropriate officer to be equipped with a camera but we'll give you a lead time to get from here to there and that was the sort of brokered settlement for how do you how do you resolve this for particularly the smaller jurisdictions, the the sheriff's offices and some of the municipal police departments and so forth. So that's where we were last spring. And the two bills you mentioned, DePaul, the sort of procedural bill in the Senate on when do you release and how do you redact and things like that. And then this this process bill in the House of who's going to pay for it, how can the state leverage sort of, you know, economies of scale and centralized procurement and maybe have a one-stop one shop for storage and things like that. You have two good faith approaches for how to make this work. And that's the, I mean, you know, we're, we represent local governments, right? And then like this is Nominally, we try and talk about Maryland policy and politics and so forth, but to some degree, I mean, we're here working for local governments. We hate the classic unfunded mandate. Just go do it and figure out how to manage it and pay for it. So to me, this feels like the year for the General Assembly and for the state in general to say, okay, we want this to happen by date certain. Now, here are some tools and better practices so that this is a reasonable goal. And I like to see this as the second step in the process. I'm I'm very happy that these bills are out there. Yeah, I think this is a bread and butter and it's stuff that we always ask for. You know, like we think this is important just like you do, but we need resources, we need guidance. And the state, they play a role in that. And it sounds like they're stepping up to do that. You know, I I, I, I agree with you, both of you. These bills are, are really interesting. And, and hopefully this is how we can move forward together here because it's such an important issue and it's so nuanced. You know, hopefully this all does come together. Obviously, a lot of stakeholders involved in this as well. So it sounds like a lot of people are at the table again and, and working out the kinks here. But generally, I agree. This is good government. And, Michael, I think we've talked a lot about, you know, new technology driving new policy. And this is another <laughs> example of, you know, what do you do with this great new technology that's out there? And, and there are a lot of questions that have to be 
worked out. So hopefully this is moving forward uh, in a way that everybody can agree on and it's going to, to, to do what the General Assembly wants to do and what everybody wants to do, balance transparency, accountability, uh, and protecting victims, right? Protecting people from, from being exposed right. on social media and bullied. So good news there. So I want to get into another one to Paul. While we have you, we're just going to go through the gauntlet, protecting <laughs> public officials, right? And so this is another MAKO legislative initiative, protecting public officials from harassment, intimidation, and threats. And again, DePaul, this is another hearing that you've, you've already been a part of. And so there was a hearing this week on one of these bills. And I want to hear both of your perspectives, because I know both of you were involved in how that went and what exactly was in the bill and what we're trying to do here. So I, I would have loved to have been there, but uh, as it turns out, Annapolis is a busy place and uh, I needed to be two other places at that same time. Um, but what I can't... Welcome to Mako, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> that's, that's the drill, right? So they, they got the B team. They only got me that time. Yeah. <laughs> well, B plus team, right? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I... I mean, this is an, uh, a holdover bill from last year. Um, it was introduced last session by uh, Delegate Karen Lewis-Young um, and Senator Ron Young on the uh, Senate side. And last year, the bill was geared towards uh, public health officials um, and public health officials especially essentially defined as any that anyone that works for a local or the state health department um, as long as they're acting within you know their official capacities trying to get their work done if someone's going to come and threaten them while they're in that process this bill creates a, a misdemeanor for that um and we heard we heard examples of that too during the during the hearing, right? I mean, and Michael, I get, you were in, I guess that you were there, right? Yeah. Paul's bill, that you were there. We heard examples of this happening. This is not just some some idea that's happened somewhere else. Like this has happened in Maryland, and it's 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 a big deal. Yeah, it's um. So I think I think Mako as an organization, like we by our nature, we show up on a lot of fiscal and authority issues and things like that. Like we want to, you know, we want we want to be able to 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 work our, our local comprehensive plan in a way that works for our community, not some state mandate. And we want to manage our own tax structure and other things like that, right? And if you listen to this podcast, you pick up the kind of things that local governments would argue before the state legislature. Th this one really just sort of hit different because we're there basically saying this isn't about money. It's not about authority. It's not about our ability to run our program. This is this is our people who need our help. And you heard at this at this hearing in the House of Delegates, and the Senate will hear this in the space of another week or two, that we had health officers as well as uh, nurses and and other healthcare workers who work in hospitals and other fields, talking about like what they receive from people who are angry. And I just I just don't feel like they signed up for that. I, I get as the health officer, there's to some degree, you're going to make a decision that can make somebody upset. But we heard a, a current health officer talk about having to go buy a better security system because he was worried for his family's well-being. We heard a former health officer relate sort of word for word where he had to like do a lot of 
expletives deleted, but he tried to recite some of the threats that have, had come to him. And it was, you know, a lot of those words that you reference by just their first letter kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, just unbelievable sorts of things because they're doing their job. They're, they're, they're making decisions in the interests of the public and people get angry and they start issuing threats and they want to intimidate. And as it turns out, Maryland is unusual. One of, you know, one of the things I think the delegates learned at that hearing is that most states say, if you, if you really make a violent threat against a health official, that's a crime. And in Maryland, we don't have that. We have a special protection for if you're a state senator or if you're a county commissioner or a short list of other officials, there's a specific crime for those sorts of things. But most of our appointed officials don't enjoy that protection. And this was a bill saying we should be there for them. And I don't know. I, I, I don't know if you could sit through that hearing and not feel it. I mean, there's there are going to be technical questions and and threshold issues and standards yeah. of proof. And that's fine. That's what the that's what the House Judiciary Committee is good at. And those are the questions they're supposed to ask. But I think they heard they heard a lot. Yeah. So to kind of piggyback on something you mentioned, Michael, um, you know, like. One of the questions that have that kept occurring was why, why are we extending it to you know these these health officials um, and not you know X Y Z group? Um, the fact of the matter is, when you are providing care, you don't get to decide who you're giving care to. Like, and you are out there in the public, you are vulnerable. You don't get a choice. Yeah. Uh, and you know that that's part of the job is helping people that may not like you um and it's especially pronounced in the health field um and so we want to keep incentivizing those same people um to you know stay in the field and you know do the good work that they are doing um and and you know I should also add that th- this bill doesn't just extend to um government workers but also to hospital workers as well right. who are also incredibly important to you know our, our coronavirus response and all sorts of day-to-day um healthcare needs yeah that testimony was really really compelling too um, just some of the again like no one should be subjected to this kind of stuff and I mean, quite frankly, the, the political climate mixed with the pandemic has created a situation and and throw in social media. Right. And everybody's hiding behind the keyboard and they can say whatever they want. It's created a situation where we are losing really good people. Right. And that's the bottom line. And people don't feel like they can protect their families. So they have to go out and buy security systems because they're making decisions. I mean, that, that's just insane. And it, it really should make everybody stop in their tracks and realize what's going on here. So. This is a this is a noble cause, and again, I, I thought it was a great hearing. Just just watching and hearing some of that testimony, I agree, Michael. I don't know how you could listen to that and right. not have a lot of sympathy there. Yeah, and I, I think I think the committee got into the stuff they're supposed to, right? I, I mean, like you don't want to recklessly, you, you don't want to accidentally pass a bill that would say the person who's angry about a public official make a decision, wants to send a letter complaining about the decision or to, you know, to be heard at a public hearing and, and express like, this has been a problem for my business or whatever. Like you need to give people the right to, to, you know, the right for redress to their government. Right. Absolutely. So you, you need to protect, you need to protect people's first amendment rights to, to express their concerns 
to public officials, both elected and when appropriate to, to appointed and, and ministerial. But at the same time, the idea of a violent threat that, that might impede someone's ability to do her job, I, I think both the Supreme Court as the guardians of what the First Amendment extends to, but also like your common person and your random member of the House Judiciary Committee should be sympathetic to what they heard. So let's try and draw the line in a smart way and let's let's protect these people who really deserve it. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really good stuff. And I, I'm really proud, uh, you know, to be a part of Mako and that this is one of our initiatives. We only have four every year and our local electeds who, who are our bosses and decide these initiatives, they really wanted to make this a top initiative and they, they understand and they see what's going on. So again, you know, sensitive issue, got to get it right, but super important and real life, real life problems here that we get, we got to solve. So to Paul, one more thing while, mm-hmm. while we have you, and I know we're running a little bit long, but I'm always fascinated with tobacco and the argument about regulation and who should regulate it. And that is also something that is uh, going on this year in the General Assembly. And you were in a hearing today about local tobacco regulation and trying to get some power back to do that at the local level. And I, I just I want to get your thoughts on that. And I know, Michael, you go way back on this, too. So we got both of you here. We might as well talk a little bit about that. So the the bill that I uh, testified on today um, relates to a court case from 2013. Um, that court case essentially took away a lot of authority from local governments under the the concept of uh, implied preemption, which which just means that they looked at state law. The state law looked like it it was intended to cover all of this and there's no room for locals to come and interfere. So this this particular um, field of law should be reserved exclusively to the state. The issue is tricky, but I mean, what was what was going on at the time that this court case happened was exactly the kind of thing that Mako comes to Annapolis and argues about, that we had communities who had local problems bubbling up related to tobacco. And there were some places that were dealing with a specific problem where sellers were sort of skirting the state rules in an effort to sell tobacco to kids. And so if that's a local problem and the state law wasn't specific enough to fill in gaps with local regulations that might be um, that might be more specific and address your local problem, like that's what we want to be able to do. Um, yeah. I know this case came from Prince George's County, where, as, as I recall, there was basically an effort afoot to, to use specific kind of tobacco sales, these like little cigars and so forth. Specific tobacco sales was, was basically drug paraphernalia. It was, it was a backdoor way for people to, to, to be able to, you know, to, to facilitate the use of narcotics. And those sort of things, like responding to local problems is, is the best way for the state to make policy. Here's the floor. If you need to go further than that, go ahead and Mm -hmm. have all those wiped out in the courts, not by the General Assembly. We didn't get to testify on that bill. There weren't there weren't stakeholder groups and public hearings. It was just the judges saying, well, in our view, we think the legislature has spoken and has just occupied this field. So all those local laws are just gone. And now we're running on close to 15 years 
with all that stuff missing, and we've lost ground on some of those issues. Yeah, so the simple solution is to quite literally change the law and specify that uh, locals have this authority. That's all this bill does. Right. Uh, right. And, you know, I think that the whole the whole concept of implied preemption generally, I mean, I hate it. Right. Because I think, Michael, you got into it like, hey, just because the law doesn't say that we have the authority, like if you want to preempt local governments, then do it in the General Assembly. Have a bill hearing. Let DePaul come and testify and tell you why it's a bad idea. Let the other side show up. Make it fair. Don't legislate through the courts. Have a public hearing. Let everybody come and say their piece and then make a decision. And I think that's, you know, at the end of the day, that's my my huge issue with implied preemption is like, don't rely on the courts. Like if you want to do something, just do it, but do it in a fair way where everybody can come and say their piece. Like that is the the overarching issue here generally, right? We're talking about tobacco, yeah. but this is not just about tobacco. Implied preemption is, is an issue in many areas and it's something that's, you know, a problem and I personally just hate it. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, it's, it's it's nuanced stuff, and like you know, our our sophisticated listeners can handle this conversation, but this is tricky stuff. I've I've gone you know, uh, the last few years to as a guest speaker with uh, you know Delegate Sandy Rosenberg teaches a, a legislation class at the University of Maryland and University of Baltimore law schools, and I talk about this topic, and you can see law students saying, "Well, oh my, what are you what are you talking about?" I mean, that, that conversation usually ends right. up with someone saying almost those exact words. What do you mean that that all just got wiped out even though <laughs> there was never a bill? I'm like, yeah, that's 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 really how it happened. Yeah. Uh, you know, coming from Baltimore City for our loyal Conduit Street listeners, you know, you probably already know that I came from the city health department. Um, one of the issues that we. Um, perpetually ran up against was uh, we have these laws on the book on the books and we can't enforce any of them you know people see these and they call us up and they ask us to go out and enforce and you know we have to basically say well yeah it's on the books but we can't actually do anything about that (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it all got wiped out yeah it's just yeah. It's a tricky issue, and it's one where there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of passion and fervor on both sides. But you know, today I think uh, you, there were a lot of people that showed up and explained the need for this. And I think um, you know, again, compelling testimony. But the other side has their points too, and this will be an interesting moving moving forward in terms of how this this shakes out. But uh, you know, implied preemption generally bad idea. So I want to leave people with that impression, <laughs> at least from our perspective, like from a local government perspective. <laughs> It's a bad idea, right? <laughs> All right, so we'll leave it there, gentlemen, for this evening. We've gotten into a lot of, of DePaul's issues. It is DePaul night on After Dark on the podcast. So I'm going to leave you both with one question. Michael, you probably can answer this easily. You probably have been thinking about it all day long because it's a Thursday. If you had to sing one karaoke song right now, Michael, what would it be? Oh, um, I don't know. Right right now, I like I took the, the After Dark to heart and so i'm ready to go sing bad to the bone oh man uh, okay I, I i'm ready to, i'm ready to crush that by the way so the oh, ball the ball <laughs> can you beat that i am in a very different place than michael i'm <laughs> thinking more sultry maybe some shade. yeah okay yeah. day wow greater okay i mean i mean you know that that's quite the uh 
quite the, 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 the Michael and then DePaul going from, you know, wow, that's just a lot to, to try and process right now on, on the after Now the, the listeners want to know, Kevin, where are you? What, what are you doing? Okay, we're, we're going to nudge you up, shove you in front of the microphone, and you yeah. have to tell John what's it going to be. What's the call? Well, that, that does happen. And, uh, you know, I, ha- I sing one song, but are also our loyal listeners will remember Natasha Mayhew. And we sing a duet together, and it's only that's the only song I'll ever sing. And if she's not there, I'm not doing it. And I think everybody knows that by now. So we, we have our song, and you're going to have to, you know, once things get better and we're not, you know, worried about getting sick, then maybe people can come and see. But it's only with Natasha, and it's only for people that are privileged enough to witness that live will you see the beauty that that is. So I got to give a shout out to Natasha, and uh, you'll have to wait and see and come to Annapolis and see it for yourself. All right, some Brit pop on the way. We're ready. <laughs> okay. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, well, we'll leave it there for tonight. That's probably probably enough. But um, you know, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and of course the Conduit Street blog. And we will make sure to link the relevant info that we've talked about here. We have a lot of stuff on the blog. We'll put that there. Michael, it sounds like, you know, do you want to do a, a, a beat to, to close? No, the no, here no, no. I can't help yourself. <laughs> all good. Good night, all. <laughs>